Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Americans for Prosperity and its affiliated organizations have had a major impact, whether you agree with them or not, on American politics over the last decade. And no one has been more responsible for that other than their funders, the Koch brothers, than Tim Phillips, a very gifted and clever organizer uh, who heads up the organization. Uh, And I sat down with Tim the other day uh, to talk about this election and what his organization is going to be doing relative to Donald Trump. So, Tim Phillips, today you're like the most powerful guy in politics who nobody knows. But I'm interested in um, how, like, I got started in politics, like, when I was five. You know, John F. Kennedy came to town. I got interested. I've told this story before here. Uh, But I'm interested. You grew up in, uh, you were born in South Carolina. Yeah. And grew up there? Yeah. My dad's given name, born in 33, Franklin Delano Phillips. Huh. He, his dad, my grandpa. Because there's a politician with a name like that. Really? You're yes, kidding. No, well, he, he got a job on the WPA, and uh, so he named little Frankie after FDR, his hero. And my dad and my granddad were both in the old Democrat machine. Uh, they would drive people to polls. They would do, you know, they would work the different boxes, what we call precincts back then. I, and I, so as a kid, I would get out of school, and my dad would pick me up sometimes early, and we would go from box to box work in the machine in, in the lead up to Democrat primaries because there was no general election back then. And I learned retail politics, David. That's how, you know, going into a textile mill and meeting a foreman maybe or meeting a key machine shop guy who just knew you know, he, he could get you 50 votes in that box if you convinced him to support your candidate. And I watched my dad just as a layperson. You know, he, he drove a bus for a living, but he did this because he was passionate about politics and, and could make a little extra money occasionally. Uh, so I learned politics, you know, from an early age, and my mom was a factory worker and worked in a, a wire plant, the four to midnight shift, for about twenty years. Did uh, so the state was? Uh, I'm trying to set it in time because South yeah, Carolina seven, went through a big, was, big seventies. It, it yeah. went big transition. That's right, Lee Atwater, uh, right. famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. Yes, he really with Carol Campbell, the guy who became the congressman for the upstate, and then, and then governor. governor yeah. uh, they founded the modern Republican Party in South Carolina. It began in that late seventies and early eighties, and it was a raging war in South Carolina until the late eighties when the state turned. Uh, red at the top, and then it took another decade for the state legislature. So this would have been in the 70s. I'm 51, so it would have been in the 70s. And what really turned me, though, to republicanism and conservative politics 
was Ronald Reagan. Uh, my dad and I were watching Walter Cronkite. Uh, I'm dating myself. I get it. I know. No, I know. No, no, you're not dating yourself. I just uh, outed myself with JFK. Yeah, well, that's so you're, right. You're like a kid. And I'll never forget this. Uh, this guy comes on. He's talking about of all issues, the Panama Canal. Now I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know. I would have been 14 years old, but we were a political family, blue collar political family. Mm-hmm. We're interested. We're watching Walter, and that guy talks about how you know I forget what he said. I barely remember the issue, frankly. And after the segment was over, I go to my dad. Dad, I'm going to be for that guy. And my dad goes, for Ronald Reagan? You, he did something he never did. This was before the remote. He had to get up off the couch to turn the TV off. <laughs> he turned the TV I'll never forget this. Sat back down and went, Timmy, or Timbo, Timbo, what, do you know what you just said? <laughs> Jimmy Carter is running for re-election. He's a Southern Baptist. We were Southern Baptists. Yeah. In case you forgot, he's a Southerner. Carter, we were Southerners. And he's a Democrat. You're a Democrat, son. My dad was a Democrat, and 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 your I mean, and this I'm, I'm not kidding. It was a big deal, and but I I became passionate about Reagan. There was no real party, so to speak, that that mattered, and but I got active at my local high school, just kind of on my own, and uh, I was hooked. And and later on, I got to be an intern in '84 in the Reagan uh, administration, which was in a tiny way. I was a you know a sophomore in college, but. Uh, I got to be an intern in the Gippers administration, so that was cool for me. Yeah, an interesting, uh, inspiring time from a Republican standpoint. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, your story reminds me. Adlai Stevenson, when he was running for governor of Illinois, yeah. told the story about the uh, uh, about the Republican uh, precinct captain who went out into rural Illinois, which was you know quite democratic, had a character of the old South, and knocked on a door. And said, uh, "I'm here to from the city to talk to you about voting Republican this year." And the farmer said, "Nope." He said, "Why not?" He said, "Well, my granddaddy was a was a Democrat, my daddy was a Democrat, and I'm a Democrat." And the precinct captain thought he'd debate a little and said, "Well, you mean if your granddaddy was a mule thief and your daddy was a mule thief, you'd be a mule thief too?" And the farmer thought about it and said, "Nope." Then I guess I'd be a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But well you can played. tell you can steal the story and and tell it uh, the other way if you That's want. That's right. I, well, and my dad stayed Democrat uh, until 2000, and I was working for uh, George W. Bush in in the South. Well, where we were vendors to the campaign. Ralph Reed and I were in business together, and we were vendors, consultants. Yeah. We weren't on the campaign officially. Uh, and South Carolina was a state. You know, obviously, I knew a little bit. Ralph knew it very well as well. We were active there. And I never, you know, this after the New Hampshire primary, and McCain had you know lit it up and. And I finally went to my dad and I said, Dad, you know, Mom, if you guys don't help me here, I, you know, little Tim, Timbo's in trouble. You're coming to help me out. And the upstate's the key. And so they end up voting in a primary, Republican primary for the first time. Blood is so. thicker than partisanship. In, huh? in 2000 it was anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I want to back up a second. So you, you decide this is what you wanted to do with your life. You wanted to be involved yeah. in the work of campaigns. My first job was a paper route. And I worked. I had a mill village route, and so mill villages. We you had a big textile mill that employed pretty much everybody, and uh, little houses all around it. And I had a paper route that serviced that mill village. It was Jackson Mill, and so when I was a you know fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I would collect the money. It was a dollar fifteen a week, and then you know I forget what it was. You got a little bit of a break if you paid by the whole month. So every Thursday and Friday afternoon, I'd be out collecting. Mom would drop me off, and I'd be out collecting, and. The four o'clock shift would blow, and you would see people starting about three forty, kind of heading into the mill, and at four heading out. And David, I remember seeing those folks, and it was good honorable work, by the way. 
I just remember thinking, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do something that makes a difference. And again, I, I respect the work, so please don't take that yeah, the wrong sure, way. No, I just understood. I wanted to do something with my career, maybe that that made a difference. You know, um, I just remember thinking that, and, and I looked. I knew politics a little bit because of my dad, who had taught me a lot about it. I was I was pretty passionate anyway. So yeah, I, I ended up uh, doing the old six year four schools. You know, as you dropped out, you know, made a little money, and then you know worked on a campaign. Then went back to school. Yes, you yes, that's did the a same. common story. <laughs> common story. It was Virginia Tech, political Liberty, Liberty University, Virginia yes. Tech, uh, two community colleges. Uh, so yeah, it was a kind of a long deal. Yeah, but, but you, uh, if you're like everybody else I know in politics, you were going to school and getting your education elsewhere. That's exactly right. What really propelled it, though, for me was my faith. And, and still is today, I'm an evangelical Christian. And so in the mid-'80s, Jerry Falwell Sr. was starting to— or no, was I had already become very aggressively involved in the political structure. I was inspired by that as a Christian. My mom would always—my brother was a pastor— my sister married a pastor, and my other sister became a domestic missionary and working in, within unchurched parts of the country. And then the youngest of the family comes up, Timbo, and I go, Mom, I want to do politics. She cried for like a week. You know, what, <laughs> what, how did we go wrong? What happened? And, and so, but I was inspired by, hey, look, you know, people of all faith, you know, people of our faith need to be in the arena, just like everyone should be in the arena for their beliefs. And so that propelled me. So I did my internship through Liberty. It was Liberty Baptist College at the time, now Liberty University. Mm-hmm. But I did the internship. Uh, they placed me in the Reagan administration. I, I had no contacts. I mean, I would never have gotten that. So I got to go to Washington. David opened up my eyes. Uh, I met um, people who were in it and got, you know, I, I had some raw background in it, but didn't really understand it. And I was blessed to meet people. Morton Blackwell, Leadership Institute, became a mentor. Found my wife that way. And now 32 years later, thank the good Lord above, we're still together. So, uh, <laughs> Does she a, say the same? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I hope she does. So let me ask you this. Um, uh, I, I, knew, that, I knew, knew that you were evangelical. I knew you're, you, you're a man of, uh, of deep faith. Yeah. And um, now you're running um, Americans for Prosperity, and you're working for the Koch brothers who are— um, libertarians in their uh, philosophy, and I know in many ways there's your views and there's dovetail. But what about an issue like gay marriage, for example, mm-hmm. where I suspect that they may have a different view? How do you reconcile? This seems to me one of the dilemmas of the Republican Party right now because you have different groups. So you've got you know evangelicals right. for whom uh, issues like marriage may be a big issue and you've got uh, populists who Trump seems to be speaking to and you've got mm-hmm. you know your traditional sort of center right corporate oriented republicans who may uh, veer more toward the libertarian view how do you reconcile these yeah. things i know at americans for prosperity and within across the broader network that we're a part of but i'll just speak for americans for prosperity uh, we focus, as you know, on economic issues, and I'm passionate about those. I'm wholly in agreement that economic freedom is the best path to prosperity and to genuinely lifting people up. And so I feel not just comfortable but passionate about the issues uh, as an organization we espouse and fight for. On a personal level, uh, I have views on other issues that are in keeping with my evangelical faith. I'm a very active member of a Cornerstone Chapel uh, church in Northern Virginia, and there, I'll volunteer my time. I'll you know, espouse my views with my family. Uh, and But that's what I do on a personal front. And so I feel You ever had a conversation with, uh, with Charles or David Koch about some of these other issues? I have not. 
I focus on the, they, they are very much, they're MIT trained engineers and they keep you on task very well. And so when I've spoken to them, uh, in most cases, it's just about, hey, what are we doing as part of the mission of Americans for Prosperity to accomplish it? So um, yeah, I just raise it because this is a big, it is. you know, the, the, uh, there are people who on many fronts, particularly as they re- relate to the economy, want government out. Mm-hmm. Uh, then on, on issues like this, they want to take a pretty strong position on what the law should be. Yeah. I, I look at our system here, which dramatically favors a two-party system, which I think is better, David. I look at the instability in Europe and in other countries, a lot of times in South America, where you have our Central America as well, you'll have, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 parties. And they're more cohesive. Absolutely, they're more cohesive. But they lead to instability because they have to build coalitions of parties once you're in power that there just isn't a level of comfort and and working together. And so I think our system is better and more stable and has helped our nation grow because it is a two-party system. Now, that means there's going to be tension within the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. I don't think that the tension on our side is any greater or in the issue gulf any wider than on the left. I think about the environmental movement, which I view as extreme, and what they want to do to blue-collar working people, the folks like my mom and dad. It is a dramatic difference. And I know the unions have even written a letter saying to this Tom Steyer guy, who you know is kind of a limousine guy who is so Bill, billionaire from California, yeah. very active yeah. on the climate change. He wants to run for governor, and good for him if, he, if that helps get a nomination in California. But suddenly he's you know, all about the environment over the last few years. And I look at what he's doing to a lot of the trade unions, and they have a right to be horrified at the direction of the Democrat Party. On the Republican side, we certainly have. Uh, some conflicts and battles. I hope we work through them. I'm speaking personally, not for AFP, David. I want to be very clear here. Yeah, right. Uh, But I do. I hope Republicans work through those. uh, And it's a challenge for them, whether it's the Trumpism, which on economic issues like free trade uh, and on entitlement reform, uh, in my view, are wrong. They're they're drifting away from what I believe has been a, a, a cohesiveness Uh, That's been good for the Republican Party because it's philosophically sound. So I I look at some of the Trump issues. I look at some of the battles between uh, evangelicals or Christian rights and perhaps the more libertarian oriented side. Uh, But that cohesion is important for a party. But when you have a two-party system, there's always going to be that tension. And I think it makes us better overall as a nation, though. You know, on this issue of um, uh, the blue-collar workers who you speak of, they Mm -hmm. seem to be at the core of Trump's base and one of the yes. things that one of the things that seems to motivate uh, his supporters more than any other issue is that issue of trade and right. free and free trade so it seems to me that that's a base that you guys have worked with mm-hmm. uh, over time how do you how do you deal with that as as because this is squarely an economic issue yeah there are certain issues that are just easier to demagogue than others and trade is one because those who espouse a more populist view or anti-free trade view can pick out villains that automatically are easier to pick out. Some foreign person supposedly taking their job or uh, others. It's easier to point to a villain. Uh, but our job, and certainly as something I'm, at, at Americans for Prosperity, we've got to do a better job of, David, 
is actually go out and tell folks why it's better for their families, for them individually, maybe for that grandkid who's just trying to get a leg up on the ladder, he or she maybe is in a trade and they're worried about their job prospects. We want to explain to them that free trade actually gives choices. It makes their life better and that it's on us to explain that. And in all candor, I think the free trade side, our side, got a little bit too comfortable with the idea that free trade is an established part of the Republican orthodoxy. I think we uh, were too comfortable. I think it's a, a, a painful lesson that we've got to redouble double down on in coming years because it's the, a core issue. Listen, there's resistance to it, obviously, in both parties. Sure Bernie Sanders has made Sanders this a is core do, of his campaign. Hillary, yeah. Hillary has, has, has taken a position against the TPP. Um, just on that point, I remember NAFTA, and I remember the battle. I was on Capitol Hill. We were talking about before the show started. And I was a chief of staff on the Hill when NAFTA started kind of popping. And the same arguments that the left and, and some on the right used to try to stop NAFTA, and that was a bipartisan effort in the end, um, the arguments are the same. And I think when you look back at NAFTA, it's been a winner for the country. On how, uh, how, how, how much of a receptive hearing do you get from that when you go back to South Carolina, to these yeah. textile towns where they've lost the mills? So I don't disagree. I mm-hmm. actually think, you know, one of the issues we have to face is the world in which we live. Right. We, have, we live in a globalized economy. Technology has, uh, has, has uh, improved at yeah. warp speed, and that's made certain jobs uh, obsolete. I think we need a strategy for how we deal with that. You and I may have a different idea of what right. that strategy should be, but I have to believe that in those towns that mm-hmm. saw the textile mills go away and other manufacturing, this is a pretty hard sell. Uh, yeah. You know, even for someone as 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 gifted as you who who comes from there. Well, I think two or three things you better have if you're going to turn it back the way it needs to be toward greater free trade and which keeps prices down, gives consumers choices. I mean, I think about all the benefits of it. Um, yeah, but people, you be, you people better have, the answer that you would well, get is that you, you need a job in order to pay for those things, whatever their price yeah. is. You better have an infrastructure that is credible as a platform. And we're working to build that at Americans for Prosperity. And not just us. I hope our movement is doing it as well. But you've got to be credible. And one way to be credible is to be in those communities over a long period of time. So you better have a credible platform. Secondly, you better have a succinct message that explains the benefits of it. And I think on both fronts, we, and this is a royal we, uh, we, we haven't really had that as much. And then third, you better be about the business of delivering your message from that credible platform over a long period of time. And I'll give you an example of that happening. Government cronyism. Now, we, we, we would define that as government picking winners and losers using our tax dollars or the tax code or the regulatory code whether it's Export-Import Bank or whether it's money for NFL stadiums, et cetera. We started taking on that issue about five or six years ago in, in earnest at Americans for Prosperity. And we got nowhere, even within the Republican Party, because there it's seen as economic development, right? It well, took or ye- fundraising. Or fundraising, that too. Amen. You're right. That's exactly right. It took us years to make progress. But you know, the last two years in Florida, we stopped – stadium funding deals running into the hundreds of millions for the Miami Dolphins, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, and the Orlando soccer team. We also ended, at least for now, it's a battle, 
funding for Hollywood studios to make movies in Florida. Some of the richest corporations in the world. They shouldn't be getting that. Where we started from five years ago, it seemed hopeless. But we kept working on it, kept digging on it, and we're finally seeing victories. North Carolina on the film front as well, we've had some successes. So, again, a strong, credible platform, a, a message that is incisive and shows the, the benefits and the, and, the, and the woes if you don't do it, and then applied over a long period of time. Those are the three keys. That's long-winded. I apologize. As a, as a guy who believes in, in the markets, uh, mm-hmm. you'll excuse me if I say we're going to take a break for a <laughs> word from our sponsor. Absolutely. Yeah. We're back with uh, Tim Phillips. You mentioned um, Trump and trade. Mm-hmm. Um, do you uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get my arms around how <clears throat> as passionate as you feel about uh, that issue – uh, and some other issues, you, you mentioned entitlement reform. He says right. he's not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. You obviously believe that um, that dealing with long-term debt requires that. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you get your arms around that candidacy? I know you said parties have different views and so on, but he's going to define the party. Are you comfortable with the way he's defining the Republican Party right now? We disagree with him on a number of the issues, and we've talked about those uh, we, as an organization, are staying out at this point. Uh, you know, in 2012, we were involved in advocating the defeat uh, in an express advocacy fashion of Barack Obama. We failed. It was a tough loss for us. Yes, thanks a I lot, was there. David. Yeah, thanks yes. a lot, pal. You I know. could have told you to save uh, your money if you had just, <laughs> just called me. Well, it's never easy to beat an incumbent president who hasn't faced a primary, but that's the best message I can think of at the moment. It's a tough one. Uh, but... Um, and in 2008, we really did not get that involved. We were a newer entity at that point. Uh, so it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to dive into every presidential race. And at this point, we are. We're, we're staying out. We would need to see uh, two things. And they're straightforward things. One is you know, genuinely movement toward a more prosperity-focused free market vision on entitlement reform, government spending, government cronyism, you know, these issues, free trade. And two... Uh, a, a tone that is, is more uplifting. And I, this isn't electoral advice, but we just tend to look at getting involved where you know, there is more of an uplifting tone. How would you define uh, Trump's uh, basic philosophy or platform? I'm not going to try to define him. I'll just look at what we the conditions we would need to become involved in some fashion. All right, let me put it this way. What do you think the odds are that uh, that those conditions will be met based on what you've seen? I don't want to put a percentage on it, but we're not there at the at this point. We're just not there with going in and being involved. And this isn't really – this isn't really what and, – and I sh- – I, we, we got way ahead of ourselves uh, because I wanted to talk a little bit about Americans for Prosperity. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it, it is a – it is cloaked in mystery for a lot of folks. We're hiding in plain sight, David. We're out there. We're but but tell me uh, tell me a little bit about it and um, how you came to be involved with it, and then I want to talk about um, sort of how you entered this presidential year sure. and where you are now. Well, we launched uh, in two thousand and four. It's actually the predecessor organization was a group called Citizens for a Sound Economy. It had been out there. Uh, for a couple of decades, it uh, was very active against uh, Hillary Care in 1994 and uh, the BTU tax that the Clinton administration put forward. And uh, so it fought a lot of those battles. But um, it ended in 2003. 
and the uh, Charles and David and other folks decide to the Koch brothers, right? The Koch brothers the, to do popularly known as the, the Koch, Koch brothers, brothers decide to launch Americans for Prosperity. Uh, we today and, and and how did you get involved with them? I was in the private sector. Uh, Ralph Reed and I were at Century Strategies Ralph Reed, together. Ralph Reed, a Christian coalition yeah, founder. We had, and we'd, we'd had a, we launched a Century Strategies together after he wrapped up his time at the Christian Coalition. We were doing campaigns and kind of government affairs work. I was more the campaign side of the business. And I met some of the folks who worked for uh, uh, Charles and David Koch. And, and uh, it was intriguing because I had been part of Did the they Christian, come and seek you out? I won't get into all the details, but I met met some I wanna, of the folks I in the network. Oh, come on, David, give me a break here. Uh, but I'll just—I've been involved in the Christian Coalition with Ralph as a consultant and just helping out and traveling with him. And I was intrigued. Could you build a grassroots, locally based effort around economic freedom and prosperity issues? It hadn't been done so much before. You had a lot of Christian right groups that have been able to do it. The NRA, to an extent, has been able to do it. On the left, you have any number of government employee unions, private sector unions, environmental groups. They're, they're real. They're powerful. Legal conservation voters, others. Deep, uh, powerful infrastructure at the state and local level. When you look at the economic side, our side didn't really have that. You had a chamber of uh, commerce that operated at the state level, but they were often for government cronyism or other things we were not really for. Uh, and so I was intrigued by that. Could you build something over a long period of time. And I've been involved in campaigns, and you and I both know, David, when November happens, you win or lose, uh, you lick your wounds or hopefully celebrate a little bit, and then it's on to the next campaign. Right. And I was hoping to be able to build something permanent that had a long-term focus. I'd, I remember being in campaigns and having ideas on something to try. And I wouldn't do it a lot of times because I would think, well, it may pay off in two or three years, but that's not going to help me this November. And so when I looked at the opportunity to be a part of an organization – that would be long-term in focus. And one of the key mantras that we are given is create long-term value. You better be about the business of, yes, short-term battles are important, whether it's a policy battle or sometimes an electoral battle if it's express advocacy. But even while doing those short-term battles, you better be creating long-term value for the cause. It didn't of the hurt that you had a, guys with very deep pockets sure. who were willing to invest. No, no in question, this. we had a we had a, an advantage there. We launched in 2004, three initial states: Kansas, North Carolina, Texas. Uh, we made every mistake uh, a startup, or I did anyway, that you can make trying to to learn how to you know to attract volunteers to build long-term local infrastructure. And you uh, did that not practice. at first around around candidates, but around issues. Oh, around issues completely, yeah. The first battle we were involved in was in Kansas. It was a tax increase battle. Then Governor Sebelius uh, was looking to raise taxes in Kansas. Uh, Republican majorities in the House and Senate were looking at going along. And we engaged in a, a several months-long battle to see, using grassroots means, could we stop it. Uh, in North Carolina at the time, it was a, a more, it, you know, North Carolina was really more the, a liberal bastion in the middle Atlantic, if you think back mm-hmm. to, to then. Uh, and we fought mostly defensive battles there. Uh, our fourth state, we wanted to go on offense a little bit, so we chose Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We launched our first staffer and uh, first office in Milwaukee. Uh, in January of 05, 2005. I'll never forget it, David. We were still learning. It was me, our first state director, uh, and we had 16 intrepid volunteers show up. The day I picked was mid-January of 05. 
yeah. on the shores of Lake Michigan. Yes. I was a Southern guy. Southern, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I had no idea. I could have, if you call me, I could have told you about Please, that. Please, I too. wish I'd ask you. Yeah. It was April before I thawed out. We had 16 people who forgave us our idiocy. But, 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 but Wisconsin, today, actually, the, the ring around Milwaukee is a very strong uh, base for conservative Republicans. That's why we started there, yeah. But at the time, then Governor Doyle, very liberal mm-hmm. governor, Democrat majorities in the House and Senate. But it was a long-term effort, and here's how long-term it is, and that's what I appreciate about the network uh, or the organization, the people I work for. Three years later, we're three years in, and there was a big – we decided to launch. We thought we were ready to take on our first big budget battle in Wisconsin against Governor Doyle. And we did bus tours, and we did a big event at the Capitol, and we got steamrolled. We lost. So we're three years in, and we're still losing battles. But, again – they looked at the long-term value they felt was being created as slowly the muscle and sinew was, was put in across the state. We added district, our local offices, field offices, built the volunteer base. Uh, and so we were ready when Scott Walker won in 2010. Uh, and, and supported him. Uh, we, we were you know, we, in, a, in a fully compliant C4 manner. We, we liked what he <laughs> was doing. Say, I'm and, not the FEC, brother. You're... Well, no, I'm, I'm serious. We take compliance. Treasury very, David, or... we take compliance very seriously. Yeah. Uh, very seriously. Uh, so, but yeah, but here, but, here but, I'll, but, I'll but, tell you this about yeah. Scott Walker. Just one quick thing. When he did the, the, the reforms in 2011, in the old days, the, the left would have dominated the aftermath. But there was an infrastructure that went out and did It's Working Wisconsin TV ads and radio ads and bus tours, dozens of It's Working Wisconsin town hall meetings to win the victory. In other words, by, to, by, to show By reforms, you mean rolling back some of the The government powerful. employee unions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where there's a similar fight going on in Illinois right yes. now uh, with, with Governor Rauner. We haven't had a budget here for yeah, ever. I know. I know. Uh, but you guys aren't deeply involved in that? We are. We have a, an operation that's not as large in Illinois, uh, but uh, David Fromm, actually, I'll be meeting with him next. Uh, he's our state director in Illinois, and we have an effort with a couple of field offices here across Illinois. We've been here for several years just working to build. It's a long, we know it's a long uh, road in Illinois, but we think this you state, see, we can change the state. Do you see in the Walker tradition? He certainly fought hard on this issue. He really has. I mean, there's only one Scott Walker in the country right now, I believe. I mean, if you look at sheer just policy victories and what he's done for his state, uh, I think Scott Walker is the best governor of the modern era. They've had mixed economic results there, though, haven't they? It's a long-term effort. I mean, you don't turn something around, as President Obama would certainly attest to in just a couple years. It's a long-term effort to build better underpinnings. Do you, uh, you mentioned taxes before. Do you, do you think there are circumstances under which tax increases are necessary? I think that the mix of taxes, it's smart to look at what is the best mix of taxes. But when you look at how government continues to grow dramatically in good times and in bad times, uh, there is no argument that makes sense for increasing the tax burden on Americans beyond where it is right now. Again, the mix can change. I'm going to give an example. Uh, I think sometimes user fees uh, are, uh, can be, we, we think, can be a more effective way you know, to fund infrastructure. You know, have a gas tax that actually goes to infrastructure. It isn't just sucked into a general fund and spent wherever the politicians want it to. And so if you want to lower income tax rates or corporate uh, tax rates or, or other taxes uh, and, and bump up infrastructure, we can look at that and go, well, that's absolutely a debate worth having. But if it's simply another add-on where the tax burden goes up, no, we don't support that. But as the country grows, aren't, don't, don't the 
demands and costs grow as well? Well, when you look at the federal budget, I remember when Bush was first elected, uh, what, a couple of trillion dollars, and today it's over $4 trillion. I mean, government spending has dramatically outstripped inflation. Now, I know inflation has been low, thank goodness, but it's dramatically outstripped it. And at a certain point, the reason we're so much for entitlement reform, uh, beyond the fact that in a lot of cases they don't work very well, uh, but even where they do work reasonably well, uh, we've got to get them on a path to sustainability. I mean, my mom and dad are 80, in their 80s now, and, and I want them to have that Social Security they were promised and, and that hopefully for the rest of their lives, and I hope it's a long, long life, uh, is there for them. But I think about people in their 40s and 50s, if we don't do something on Social Security, I don't have confidence that after them working a lifetime with a certain promise, that money will actually be there. Let me ask you a question, bankrupt. though. Um, we, do li- we live in, as we talked before, in these times in which things have changed dramatically uh, uh, in the economy and has created great dynamism in some ways because of uh, new markets in the world, because of technology and the improvements that uh, it brings. And, and it's created an enormous amount of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is we, – we have the greatest – amount of inequality since the 1920s. Um, So isn't there some logic, fundamental logic to saying the folks who have done fantastically well can kick in a little bit more so that your your mom and dad who uh, worked a lifetime can get the money that they were entitled to? I think this growing two-tiered society in the United States is one of the great threats long-term to our nation. Income, others call it income inequality. We call it a two-tiered society. And when you look at what the, the, the society that's doing pretty darn well and continues going up, what advantages they have, I think both parties too often work to give them additional advantages for political reasons, uh, for fundraising reasons. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, and I think that one of the most insidious ways that happens and that you promote this two-tiered system is government corrupt. We call it government cronyism. They, they, I think about all the tax breaks and the special giveaways that wealthy folks and corporations know how to get, and they have lobbyists who can help them get more. And I think that it does two things. One, in a material sense, it does make them richer. And off, in many ways, it will be gotten gains. But two, it tells so many other Americans who don't have the lobbyists, who don't have that power and those in connect, inside connections, that there's no use to even try. And they kind of give up on the American dream. And I, I think that is, is even more devastating because it starts to infect so many Americans. And so we very much believe uh, this two-tiered society is a problem. But, but wouldn't having a, a, a solid progressive income tax system help in that we have We have one of the most progressive income taxes in the world, David. I mean, I mean, it's at 30, what, 39 at this point? I mean, that's pretty darn progressive at this point. About 40% don't pay any income I, taxes I would, at all. I would so, agree with you in the sense what, that you it tell is me riddled, what number is reasonable, is riddled, 70, 80, riddled, 90? Well, I don't agree with Bernie Sanders right. that we should go back there. Right. But uh, it is true that when we had we, – we did pretty well with fairly high income tax rates for a very long time. But that's not uh, – I, I agree with – you and I agree on one fundamental point is you've got a tax code that's riddled with special yeah, deals. It drives us nuts. And so therefore people who do have lobbyists and do have advantages end up paying less than they, they should and others pick up the burden of that. Right. We ought to – uh, we ought to address that. Do, do, I assume the Coke, Coke Industries must have its battalion of lobbyists as well, right? I'm sure they do. I can tell you they're separate from us at AFP, and we consistently 
have fought to end tax breaks and set-asides for oil companies, for natural gas, for and yes, for green energy as well. We want a level playing field. Again, a lot of these movie studios, a lot of the, the groups that get the stadium money, these are very wealthy businessmen and women, uh, and we consistently battle to end those special breaks for them. We want a lower, flatter uh, tax rate, and we think that'll help promote more prosperity. And, and one other thing, I, I think one of the biggest differences we have with a liberals— Doesn't a flat tax break, if you have this, this, this two-tier society that you talk about, doesn't a flat tax break actually favor the people who no, are I'm, doing fantastically I'm well? I'm talking about getting rid of the special tax breaks where people are getting money based on the industry they're in. I mean, I think about the oil industry is doing pretty – I know it's been a downturn, but they, they don't deserve or need special tax breaks that are based just on them being in the oil side, just like green energy. I look at these wind and solar companies. So, they, you lo- so, so you're advocating one way. Does Coke Industries av- advocate the other way? I don't know. I, you'd have to talk to them. I, I don't, it should I don't. be a matter of interest, though, right? Why? Our job is to go out and talk to the American public, get them whipped up to then go talk to their elected representatives. So – uh, that that's our job. I can tell you, David Koch is our foundation chairman, and, and they've been supportive of the Koch brothers over the years. So I would suspect if they didn't like what we were doing to end government cronyism, they would they would try to rein us in. In fact, they've encouraged it and urged us and, and to, to take a more aggressive role on government cronyism. I think the biggest difference on income inequality between the left and the right, the left assumes a static economic pie, and they want to be the guys divvying it up. We believe we got to keep growing it. If we don't get 3 or 4% growth, then we're not going to do what we need to do as a country. I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah, I guess the counter argument is that if you put more money in the pockets, if, if you let uh, middle income people uh, keep more of their own money uh, by asking a little more from the people at the top, you're stimulating your economy, which is a consumer-driven economy. 70% of the, the economic growth comes from consumer spending. So give people the chance uh, to do that. But you can't really do that by Carving yeah, but up the government. left doesn't want to give it to the, the average person. They, the, what they want to do is create new government programs where you know an army of government employee unions, most of whom are making over hundred grand a year. I'm speaking. Most, for, I'm speaking for myself, <laughs> brother. I'm, just, let, I'm let's, speaking uh, about we, the real world, though. Here, let's let's uh, let's take another short break, and we'll be right back with you Tim Phillips. You know, you uh, Tim, you you talked about the um, uh, the activities that you've. Uh, in, that you're involved in in the states, and you're in a lot of states now. Right. How many states are you really active We in? have full-time staff in 35 states, uh, in every kind of state imaginable. You know, there are battleground states like Florida, Ohio, but deep red states like South Carolina, Tennessee, blue states like Illinois. So we're in every kind. And have been pretty active since uh, 2010 and, and before leading right. up to that in turning a lot of state legislatures. Is that fair to say? Well, we've certainly moved the direction. You invest in local races, don't you? Uh, we have invested before, and we do a lot of issue education work. We sure do. And I think about as frustrating, and David, just something you and I have talked about, as frustrating as the federal level has been for us, and it's maddening to us. I mean, the Democrats going way over to the left, in our view. The Republicans, who knows what they're doing a lot of the times. At the state level, though, in the last six years, it's been one of the revolutionary renaissances in economic freedom and prosperity policy that's been enacted. It's been something I haven't seen since the late 80s, early 90s. I will say this. um, You know, when I talk to Democrats uh, about deficiencies in the Democratic Party, uh, I always point to what you guys have done in conjunction with Ed Gillespie and his work at the state state legislatures and so on uh, to 
to turn legislatures, and there's no comparable effort that I can see of any magnitude on the on the Democratic side uh, to elect to identify legislative candidates, support legislative candidates, push issues at the local level. Uh, you guys are involved. Not sometimes you'll get involved in in in, in local municipal. Uh, races very much so, and 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 is the theory or, or issues uh, certainly issues at local local. But of level. course, you know this whole issue, uh, this whole point of issues is by highlighting uh, highlighting certain issues, you're you're sort of fertilizing the ground for for campaigns as well. Are you not? Well, I'll leave the the, the I, definition I'd say yes. to others. I, I'll leave. The, I can just tell you that we believe. I'm trying to give you credit here. Oh, I don't know. I'll just say this: our goal from the beginning has been to build a local state based organization that if it came together to do a national effort occasionally maybe on a presidential every four or eight or 12 years or uh, but but the core focus was on the local and state level and we've done that i do think it's made a difference on the policy front i mean we've had states that are now right to work uh michigan and indiana prevailing wages have been ended which drives up construction costs and in a lot of states tax cuts in about a dozen and a half states that have been real think about a state like north carolina uh, David, where they've cut about four billion dollars, four billion dollars in income taxes in the last three years. Uh, education reform. You know, today more kids have choices, and their parents have more choices, despite the best efforts of these government employee unions uh, to 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 protect the teachers and 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 stanch the flow of of choice for these kids. We've got more than we've ever had before. And that is something we're excited about. And so when people say to us, "Oh, are you guys really? Are folks getting you know a bang for the dollar? They maybe they give you." At the federal level, it has been frustrating. There's, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. At the state level, it's been a once-in-a-generation renaissance of freedom and economic policy uh, successes that we believe are making people's lives better. What are you going to do in the federal elections this year? Well, we're focused uh, at this point on the United States Senate. Uh, the, are you concerned about the Senate? Do you did there are, You've got a whole passel of uh, Republican candidates in uh, in blue states. Uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio, yeah. New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, open seat in Florida, unless you can persuade Senator Rubio to reconsider. Yeah. Um, even Missouri and Iowa, you've got incumbents who have real races. Arizona, John McCain, tied. Uh, are you worried about losing the Senate? And do you think Trump is an impediment in terms of Republicans holding on to the Senate? Republicans have a an incredibly difficult map this year. You pointed out uh, the, the blue states, seven states uh, that Obama carried twice uh, that Republicans are defending this year. Uh, so they have a very difficult map. So even in a pristine year, the challenge of them holding the Senate would be uh, a big one. And this ain't a pristine year. Uh, this ain't a pristine year. I mean, I, the, the impact of Trump, uh, one thing I've learned over the last 15 months, frankly, is to be more humble uh, about making I think predictions he would insist. On, yeah, on, on what is going to happen. So the impact that the presidential is going to have in four months, I'm not prepared to say anything. I, I, I've learned I've learned to be more careful in that regard. I mean that in a literal sense, not trying to be cute. Uh, so we're looking at these states. We've already undertaken some express advocacy efforts, places like Ohio. We look at former Governor Strickland and Senator Portman. There's a massive difference on the issues there. We've already gotten involved with you know, everything, television, grassroots, uh, in an express advocacy fashion. Other states that we're looking at, you know, places like Wisconsin, you mentioned Florida. Florida is our biggest footprint. David, we've got 16 field offices at Americans for Prosperity across Florida, uh, dozens and dozens of staff and thousands of volunteers. And by the way, 
we don't ramp that up based on an election year. Uh, we'll have those, you know, God willing, those offices next year. And, and so it's a permanent long-term effort that when we, when we seek to build up a state. But presumably their activities change They do, in absolutely, year. absolutely. And uh, isn't it kind of— Let me give you just one quick example on that. This year and over the last year in Florida, one of the biggest battles has been Medicaid expansion. So our staffs and, and grassroots volunteers were actually focusing on Republican state legislators because they have a big majority of chambers. You're fighting Medicaid expansion. Absolutely. Excuse me. Yes, we are. And the Republicans there have been wobbly, and in the end, they held up and, and did the right thing. Uh, and then the stadium battles, trying to end the, the federal funding, or excuse me, the state funding for the stadiums there. Uh, so, and then, yeah, now maybe in 2016, we, we will consider being involved in an express advocacy effort. We make that decision on a case by case basis. You, uh, you meant you used the word humble before in re- relation to yourself. It's not been used that often in relation to Donald Trump. I don't know if you caught his press conference the other day, but you said earlier that the tone of his campaign was one that concerned you. Um, he went hard after governor, uh, the governor of New Mexico. Uh, he went hard, uh, who is a, a leading, uh, a leading Hispanic office holder, mm-hmm. chairman of the Republican Governors Association, along with the media and a bunch of other folks. Uh, were you uncomfortable with that? Governor Martinez is someone we have a lot of respect for, uh, and we urge every elected leader out there or every person who wants to be an elected leader you know, to have a tone that's worthy of the nation that they're hoping to serve. And so we say that to everyone, and this is not I'm, – and I – I'm not singling out one person. I'm really not. Well, there's only one guy who's going to be the nominee of the well, Republican but I, Party. But there, are, there are hundreds of candidates across the country. And, and I think about some of the things Hillary Clinton says. They're outrageous. I mean, she, it's funny to hear her talk about news conferences, the tone or tenor, when she hasn't had one uh, in, I guess, six, seven months now. And so every politician can improve their tone. Uh, and I, so I'm not going to try to, David, single out Donald Trump. Yes, it is, uh, you know, it is frustrating uh, to, to see some of the things that are being said there. But it's a broad problem, and a lot of the politicians out there have it. I mean, Bernie Sanders is out there you know, calling for you know, a socialist revolution in this country, and it's a disastrous policy prescription. So there, there, this is more than just one person having a tone problem. But you, that is one thing we, we want these guys to lift up. Do you up. think Trump has the, the organizational infrastructure that you need to win a presidential race? I'm not going to try to make predictions you, you're on a, what he's doing. You're as good an expert I'm on not, David. I am absolutely not going there. I'll let those guys speak for themselves. When just, I'll just focus on AFP. One thing you mentioned when we were talking about the, the, the size of our organization, just very briefly because it's to that organizational point, I do think that a lot of these state victories uh, on the policy front, and for the first time, we're seeing the impact of of an infrastructure applied in a professional way over a long period of time. And that's what is so exciting to me about being a part of AFP, David. I, these campaigns, they're important, and they, but they come and go. Our goal is to build the most professional, effective infrastructure. And, and it's, it, I know I'm geeky in this regard, but that's what gets me excited. That, no, I, listen, I, I've seen the power of infrastructure, of data, of using, uh, marrying old-style shoe leather with, uh, yeah. with social media. You guys have done that very well. The assumption was that that would be deployed on behalf of the Republican nominee, and everybody made a pilgrimage to the Koch brothers uh, at the beginning of the cycle. There was talk of spending $900 million on the presidential race. That infrastructure that you have at this point is not going to be deployed on behalf of the presidential candidates. You're going to be focused on these Senate races. We're, we're staying out of the presidential point. Uh, we're, uh, we're staying out of the presidential effort at this point. We're, we've never 
made a firm, you know, never uh, statement, but we're out at this point. You, uh, it's hard to integrate the longer you go, though. It, it takes time to integrate systems, right? So if, if the campaign wants to take advantage of the, the, the data and everything that you have to offer. We can't in any way integrate with them, though, David. We really can. I mean, from a compliance from a, fashion, I see. even if we as a C4 chose to do an express advocacy. I'll give you an example. In 2014, we decided to take our field operation in some of these states where there were Senate races and make it an express advocacy effort. Uh, and so we were advocating you know, in places like Arkansas, you know, the defeat of the Democrat there, and places like North Carolina, Kay Hagan, the former senator there. We were directly advocating. But even then, while doing that under the law, in no way, shape, or form were we allowed to integrate or talk with or coordinate with the Republican candidates right. in those states. We had to be very understood, careful there. Understood. So. But, but the candidate would be, I, I'm thinking probably more of the RNC and yeah. the candidate and the, 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 the complexity of of integrating those two operations is a time-consuming. Uh, is Again, a time- though, we and I'm not. This isn't some kind of just double speak. This you're is like the you're reality. like the man, though. You understand we are, all we this in, stuff. We are not in any way integrated with the Republican National Committee. So even in 2012, I'll give a quick example there. In 12, uh, we advocated the defeat of President Obama with our television effort, and we did digital ads and TV ads. About I don't know, 35, 40 million dollars there. But our field effort was an issue education effort. And so because— probably had a little—people could deduce from that what you were—the point you were trying to make. Isn't it kind of a canard, actually, that organizations can run sort of issue-oriented campaigns and not be considered political spending in the middle of a political debate? I disagree. I think it's important year-round, every year— to have free speech rights that are rock solid for every American to be able to go out and hold these politicians accountable. I disagree. And we do it year in, year out. We, I'll give you, I tell you this, in 2009 and 10, we were spending millions of dollars trying to stop those Obama folks from passing Obamacare. And so now if we use it, is it suddenly political because we're doing it in 14 or 16? No, we've done it for years. We've spent more money as an organization trying to roll back government-run health care after its passage and trying to stop it from being passed before it passed than I bet any other organization in the country. And so it would be weird to say all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, it's September, so we're going to deem that political speech when for years it's not been political speech. That's arbitrary, and I think it infringes on First Amendment rights. So I I strongly disagree with you there. Well, I just, you know, the the controversy is about uh, this dark money and that uh, those categories don't have to disclose dark money you mean first amendment protected speech oh, i'm okay. talking about <laughs> i'm talking about hundreds of billions hundreds of millions of dollars right. spent by interests that you know you talked earlier about the fact that there were people who wanted to game the system in order to produce a result how does the voter know whether some of those people who want to game the system aren't pouring their money into campaigns through these through these vehicles that don't disclose. We believe more speech is better than less speech. And so if you go back and Google us and George Soros, you will never find us decrying George Soros being involved. He has every right to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, which he does, every right to do that. He's an American. He has every right to do that. We would never decry an American, whether it's giving 50 hours a week of their time or 50 million of their dollars on the left or right or somewhere in between 
uh, as part of their First Amendment protected free speech efforts to but move why their not, country. Why not disclose it, though? No one's saying they shouldn't be able to do it. I mean, some may say it. Uh, there's a pretty good argument mm-hmm. for what the impact of all that is, but all that money is. But why, why, what's the argument for not disclosing? Well, you have the most feared agency in the country, the Eternal Revenue Service, that it certainly is clear to us that they targeted American citizens based on their political beliefs. And they blamed it on some Cincinnati office. Uh, and when in reality, we believe it was, a, it looks like it was a far reaching uh, assault by folks within the IRS. And that has a chilling effect. You have other groups worried about agencies attacking them on regulatory grounds. There would be a chilling effect if you had to have every dollar disclosed. And this IRS thing So should no dollars serious, be disclosed for that reason? The campaign dollars are disclosed at this they point. They are, but should yeah. they not be? I think it's okay. I mean, we've not called for reforming the current uh, FEC but do you guidelines. But do you think people are at risk who have their contributions exposed today? Absolutely, I think there are. They're, they're, look, the IRS thing, it, it, so many people are frightened of an agency that powerful deciding for political reasons to get involved. That was one of the most horrifying episodes that we've seen, and it had a chilling effect on a lot of folks, even though at AFP we don't have to disclose our dollars. It frightened a lot of people. Also, you have a, a California case right now where the Attorney General of California has tried to force Americans for Prosperity Foundation to disclose some of our donors to the AG's office there. And that, uh, when politicians get involved with digging in more and more, uh, there's always a sense from a lot of folks uh, there are ulterior motives there. And both parties have been guilty of this, by the way. I, I think about the Nixon years. There were some abuses there. Agreed. I, I have to tell you, though, and I don't expect you to accept this. I was the political guy in the White House mm-hmm. at the time of all of this. I could not have picked any of the IRS officials out of a lineup. I'm not in any way suggesting no, no, that. I'm just, I'm not, I know you're not. But what I'm saying is if there was a big sort of directed conspiracy, mm-hmm. uh, I think it somehow— I would have, I would have known, sure. and so uh, you know. I just want to uh, allay your concerns, uh, uh, and I, I accept them. I know you. I've known you for several years now. Yeah. By the way, I've been to the Institute on Politics, yes, which is which one is of the, much which is one of the best uh, programs in the country. And, and but what Lois Lerner did, it hurt democracy. It hurt. Well, I think what democracy. was done was a boneheaded, stupid thing, even if you accept what was said, and I do, that they use an algorithm to try and sift through all of these applications, uh, given the sensitivity of it, it was a a boneheaded thing to do. And I'm I'm very clear on that. Listen, the last thing I want to talk to you about is you mentioned earlier... David, uh, just one moment on First Amendment. I can tell you, I actually appreciate the president's remarks. Was it at Rutgers? I think where he spoke about the need to continue free speech on campus. And this is wholly unrelated to the finance. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm not playing uh, games. I, I yeah. mean that. That was something that, good for the president for standing Listen, up. Listen, I appreciate that you and I are sitting agreement. across a table here and having a reasoned conversation. Yeah. I think we need more of that uh, in, our, in our politics. The last thing I want to ask you about was this environmental issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have been very, I mean, you essentially are... Um, on the point of sort of dismantling environmental regulations. No, we're not doing a very good job because they're, they're being stingy. But let me ask you a <laughs> question. EPA I understand your argument. Plant. You talked earlier about the, uh, the poor blue-collar worker. I assume you took mm. coal miners and so on. You've, uh, uh, you've, I assume you mean the businessmen who, run, who are in the energy business. Um, but what about, what about people who live in these areas who uh, 
who are concerned about the quality of the water they drink and whether their kids are being uh, poisoned or the in an urban area where you've got kids who are twice oh, who are 50% more likely to get asthma because of air pollution and so on what don't they have rights as well i was in china for the first time last october with my wife and it was hazy and cloudy as they call it but it was pollution and so i was thankful that we have you know base some baseline regulations in this country that give us clean air and clean water and in no way have we called for dismantling the the, the core uh, regulations that give us good but they have air to be and enforced for us. well and then enforces them too the big debate going on right now is how far is one side going to go and this side the left in pursuit of an agenda that has questionable environmental uh, utility at this point, but that actually harms the everyday lives and infringes upon the everyday lives and prosperity of tens of millions of Americans, most of whom are the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society. Who, 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 are, who are also the, more often than not victimized by environmental conditions. I mean, the, the asthma, for example, is much higher in minority communities than elsewhere because of the nature of environmental uh, hazards in those areas. We can bat this around yeah, forever. I'd love to, I, I, by I, the listen, way. It's, we it's should, an I want issue. you to come back here. I want you to come back to the Institute of Politics. And let's. And if you change your mind about the presidential race, uh, let us know here first. <laughs> so. Well, it was an honor to be at Iowa Institute for Politics. It's an amazing, usually it takes decades to get critical mass in an academic setting, and you guys have accomplished it in just a handful of years. Well, it happens because guys like you and so many others have been willing to contribute their time to sit down with these young people, and uh, we're really grateful for that, and I'm grateful, uh, Tim, for you being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.